1998, an anonymous donor gave a marketing agency $150,000. And he said, I'd like you to create an advertising campaign called God Speaks. His desire was to reach people who had drifted away from their faith. And the campaign created such a positive response that the Outdoor Advertising Association of America picked it as its public service campaign for the year, which meant that that ad campaign would now run on 10,000 billboards in hundreds of cities nationwide. Here are some of the spiritual sayings they used. Uh, Here's the first one, wherever you go, there I am. Or this one, that love thy neighbor thing, I meant that. (laughs) Or this, keep using my name in vain, I'll make rush hour longer. (laughs) Or this, don't make me come down there. But aren't you glad we serve a God who has come down here? I mean, these sayings are catchy and they're designed to get people to think, but God has come down when he sent his son Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas. We're beginning a new series this December. We're calling it simply the cast of Christmas. Our focus today will be in the Old Testament from all the way from Moses to Malachi. And we're going to see that the Old Testament is filled with exhortations to expect the coming of Christ. This is captured in Isaiah 64, verse 1. And I picture Isaiah looking up at the heavens as he surveys his culture, as he surveys everyone not getting along, as he surveys all that's happening in his society. And as he looks at how people have backslidden away from God, have gotten bored with God, He looks up and he says, oh, that you would rend the heavens, open them up, God, and come down. The prophet was longing for the Lord to come down into this world to make sense out of all the nonsense, to bring peace to all the problems, to dispel all the darkness, to extricate evil. Isaiah was hungry to have the Holy One enter his whacked-out world in an extraordinary manner. Brothers and sisters, aren't you glad the Lord has come down? Well, this sense of holy anticipation and longing for the Lord is, is found in many of the Christmas songs that we sing this time of year. The one we just sang, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and do what? Ransom captive Israel. We're in bondage here. And we're mourning in lonely exile until the Son of God appears. Here's our main idea. The prophets foretold the coming of Christ with pinpoint precision. Christmas is rooted in the Old Testament because God has been planning our salvation for a long time. Our approach today, well, it's pretty simple. We're going to allow the word of God to speak. 
I'm going to make some comments to help clarify, but for the most part, we're going to hear directly from God in His Word. Uh, Let's start by looking at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It contains the first hint of the gospel in the Bible. These words are spoken by God to the serpent right after Adam and Eve sinned. Listen then to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. So he's talking about offspring, and and now God's referring to a he. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And the rest of the Bible shows the battle between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve, which culminates in the ultimate and final victory of Jesus through his death and his resurrection, his ascension, and his second coming. So from the moment of the first sin onward, the Old Testament prepares and points us to the great moment when when Jesus saved us from the curse of sin. Are you aware that the Old Testament literally has hundreds of prophecies which have been fulfilled by the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ? Scores more will be fulfilled when he returns at his second coming. We're going to give attention to that the day after Christmas on Sunday, December 26th. So I've selected 10 Old Testament passages which speak of the birth of Jesus. And after listing each one, we'll consider the corresponding New Testament fulfillment. And then we're going to soak in several scriptures from the Old Testament which deal with the death of Christ. And we're going to end our time together by celebrating communion. It's my prayer that this becomes a time of worship, a sense of awe. If you're doubting the Bible, if you've been drifting, this is a time for us to go, whoa, God thought all of this up. Hundreds, thousands, even beyond eternity past. You ready to dive in? Let's go. Number one, Jesus is the, is the offspring of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, God is speaking to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And look at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Okay, let's go over to the New Testament. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. Listen, who is Christ? Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 opens with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of who? Abraham. Second, Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. Now we're in Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. A scepter was the privilege of a ruler. A staff, the symbol of a shepherd. 
According to Matthew 1, verse 3, the genealogy of Jesus is traced through Judah. Oh, let's fast forward to the end of the book, the book of Revelation. We see there how the lineage of the Lord runs through the tribe of Judah. Judah, ponder with me, Revelation 5, 5, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. Number three, Jesus is a prophet like Moses. Listen to what God says to Moses. I'm in Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So Moses is told another prophet is coming and that prophet will say what God wants said and do what God wants done. Oh, would you consider how Jesus is not just similar to Moses, but he's far superior. New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Prophecy number four. Jesus will rule on the throne of David forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16 reads this, and your house and your kingdom, speaking to David, shall be made sure forever before me. He says it again. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that prophetic prediction can't refer to David's son Solomon because when Solomon died, the kingdom was split in two. It was anything but forever. The end of his life, the kingdom was permanently divided. The Lord Jesus comes from the line of David and his kingdom is eternal. Hey, could I remind you what the angel said to Mary? Luke chapter 1. This is beautiful. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there and of his kingdom there will be no end. Number five, kings will bring tribute to him. Check this out. Psalm 72 verse 10, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Check out verse 11. May all kings, what? Fall down before him. All nations serve him. Now, we're not certain the wise men were actual kings, but they certainly represent how nations will fall down in worship to the word made flesh. Oh, would you worship along with the wise men 
as you hear these words, Matthew 2.11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they what? Oh, didn't we just read that? They fell down and what? Worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Brothers and sisters, the prophets foretold the coming of Christ with pinpoint precision. Oh, there's more. Let's look at the next. Number six, the virgin will give birth to Emmanuel. Written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. We read these words in the book of Isaiah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Oh, I can't help but point out it says the Lord himself will give this sign. I'm reminded of what Abraham said in Genesis 22.8. God will provide for himself the lamb. The name Emmanuel means the strong God with us. And from the point of this miraculous birth on, Jesus, God, would be present among his people. Now this stunning fulfillment is found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Check this out. All this took place, all those details took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What prophet? Isaiah. What chapter? Chapter 7, verse 14. Here it is. Behold, these words written 700 years before. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Number seven, Jesus will bring gladness to Galilee. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, we read, well, let me set the context first. Let me back up to the end of chapter 8. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. That's a rough time. Listen to verse 1 of chapter 9. The mood changes. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, Zebulun and Naphtali, they're tribes up in the north, making up the land of Galilee. And for many years, the people in that region knew only grief, only darkness. Why? Because that's where the enemies came. And they hit them first on their way south. And so it was a time, the time of distress and grief. The enemies would attack them all the time. And Isaiah tells of a time in the future when their gloom will be replaced by gladness. And where will that happen? In Galilee. In addition, check out verse 2 of Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in a land of 
deep darkness, on them has light shone. Oh, I hope you're moved by how Matthew chapter 4 marks the ministry of Jesus being grounded in Galilee, which is a direct fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah predicted 700 years earlier. Check this. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Who's that? It's Jesus. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. Jesus, the light of the world, took the gospel beyond the borders of Israel into Gentile areas. Number eight, mothers will weep for their children. Written some 600 years before Christ was born. Jeremiah makes a prediction. This isn't a happy one. It's usually not on Christmas cards. Jeremiah 31.15, thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. There's a time of exceeding anguish, widespread weeping, especially by mothers for their children. Well, let's set the context. Ramah is located about five miles north of Jerusalem. Historically, it was the holding place for Jewish captives before they were deported to Babylon, much like Terezin was for prisoners before they were sent to Auschwitz. And Rachel is known as the mother of the nation who died while giving birth to Benjamin. And when she, while she is buried in Bethlehem in this profound poetic imagery, her tears are figuratively spilling into the soil again as mothers are weeping and crying inconsolably. All right, let's go to the Christmas account. Matthew chapter 2. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then what was, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. What prophet? Oh, didn't we just read Jeremiah? So Herod, killing those babies, predicted hundreds of years earlier. It's horrific. If you go back in the history, the Babylonians slaughtered children. Several centuries later, Herod's hatred led to the butchering of babies in and around Bethlehem. In A.D. 70, up to a million people were killed, including infants and children, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And then 1,900 years from then, Hitler exterminated 6 million Jews in the Holocaust, many of whom were children. Friends, are you aware that Rachel is still weeping today? And if you lean in, you can hear her loud lamentation. 
for the 63 million babies which have been aborted in our country since 1973. This past week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments. That was on Wednesday. And I'm praying that that will lead to the reversal of Roe v. Wade. And that decision will be handed down in June or July. It was very moving to hear the opening argument. I don't know if you caught it. It was made by the Solicitor General of Mississippi. Albert Moeller, commenting on that, said that these are some of the most important words ever spoken before the Supreme Court of the United States. These words speak the truth, and these words made history. So here's how the oral arguments began. After Chief Justice Roberts introduced the case, he called on General Stewart, the Solicitor General from Mississippi, and this is how he began, and I quote, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey haunt our country. They have no basis in the Constitution. They have no home in our history or traditions. They've damaged the democratic process. They poisoned the law. They've choked off compromise. For 50 years, they've kept this court at the center of a political battle that it can never resolve. And 50 years on, they stand alone. Here's how he ended. Nowhere else does this court recognize a right to end a human life. In essence, he stated the obvious. Because the preborn are people, they must be protected. All right, number nine. The place of Jesus' birth must be Bethlehem. The prophet Micah recorded an astonishing predictive prophecy 700 years before the birth of Jesus. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, That hard-to-pronounce name simply tells us which Bethlehem because there's a couple of them. This is the Bethlehem located five miles south of Jerusalem. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, right? Little. From you shall come forth for me, God, one who is to be what? Ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. From of old is used elsewhere to describe the eternity of God. And from ancient days literally means from the days of eternity. Now, this is remarkable to me. Check this out. An almost forgotten prophet named Micah was moved to record a predictive prophecy which stated that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem 700 years go by until one day God explodes into human history by sending his son to be carried in the womb of a maiden named Mary. (laughs) Check this. And then... God moves in the heart of a pagan emperor located 1,500 miles from Israel. He's in Rome. And what does he do? He declares a census, a census that had to be taken of the entire world, 
commanding people to go back to their place of birth to be counted. You go, so what? I know that. I sing about that every December. Here's the so what. Joseph and Mary were where? Where were they living? Nazareth. Where's Nazareth? It's, it's north. Where's Bethlehem? South. South of Jerusalem. 80 miles. Well, Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. How's that going to happen? Oh, I'm going to have a pagan emperor make a census of the whole world which made them travel all the way down to Bethlehem. Why? Because Joseph was from the family of David and so he's required to register in the little town of Bethlehem, which was also the birthplace of David. (laughs) Notice how precisely God orchestrated everything that first Christmas. Mary was close to her delivery date, so Joseph decided to bring her along. When they finally arrived, Mary was ready to give birth, and Jesus was born in the precise place foretold by Micah. Okay, Luke chapter 2 fills in the details. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Now, listen to how John 7.42 captures this. Has not the Scripture said, what Scripture? Micah 5.2, that the Christ comes from the offspring of David, and, well, that's 2 Samuel 7, but here's the part from Micah 5.2, and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. Number 10, the son was to come out of Egypt. Book of Hosea reads this way, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. If you know your Old Testament, you'll recognize the significance of Egypt. On the one hand, it represents slavery and stress. On the other, it signifies safety and security. Check out Matthew 2. We see here how God moved Joseph, Mary, and Jesus to Egypt. Why? It's very clear here. In order for prophecy to be fulfilled. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What prophet? Hosea. We just read it, chapter 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. Friends, the prophets foretold the coming of Christ with pinpoint precision. And I hope that you're experiencing a sense of awe, a sense of wonder as we've been walking through the word. 
And hopefully your confidence in the truthfulness of the Bible, in the supremacy of the Savior, is causing you to worship. Listen, Christmas didn't happen in a vacuum. Christmas is the fulfillment of the anticipation seen throughout the Old Testament. Many years ago, Peter Stoner, a professor of mathematics, conducted a study to calculate how likely it would be for Jesus to have fulfilled just eight prophecies. He concluded it would be one in ten to the 17th power. That's hard for me to comprehend, and so I prefer this illustration from Lee Strobel. He's a former atheist, author of A Case for Christ. He says this, I imagine the entire world being covered with white tile that was one and a half inches square, every bit of dry land on the planet, with the bottom of just one tile painted red. And then I pictured a person being allowed to wander for a lifetime around all seven continents. He could be permitted to bend, he would be permitted to bend down only one time and pick up only one piece of tile. What are the odds? It would be the one tile whose reverse side was painted red. And he says this, the odds would be the same as just eight of the Old Testament prophecies coming true in any one person throughout history. (laughs) It's a mind blow. See, even though not everyone who was alive at the time connected the dots, Jesus purposely and specifically, get this, not just eight, but some 300 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled with pinpoint precision. Prophecies that dealt with his his birth his death, his resurrection, and his second coming. Listen to what he said to two disciples out on a walk Easter evening. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me. Where? In the law of Moses. That's Old Testament. And the prophets. That's Old Testament. And the Psalms. Well, that's Old Testament. Everything written about me, Jesus said, where? In the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Now, we've only touched on a portion of the prophecies related to the birth of Jesus. Let's transition now. Let's consider some passages dealing with the details surrounding the death of Jesus. So written 600 years before Christ. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Matthew 27, verse 46, Jesus is on the cross. About the ninth hour, he cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A quote from Psalm 22, 1. Psalm 22, 16 to 18, they've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
Jesus was pierced. None of his bones were broken. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes. Matthew 27, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Well, consider Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Listen to what happened in Matthew 26. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss as the man sees him. Psalm 69, 21, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Matthew 27, 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Zechariah 11, 12, and 13, they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Matthew 27, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the, how much? 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And he said, I've sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. They're like, what's that to us? See to it yourself. Zechariah 13.7 Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Mark 14.50 And they all left him and fled. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes now and I want to read from Isaiah chapter 53. And the reason I'm going to ask you to close your eyes is because I want you to worship right now. Because the words I'm going to read are God's words, and I want you to think about what Jesus went through for us, but I want to read Isaiah 53, written 700 years before crucifixion was even invented. Listen. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, shalom. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, 
stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You can open your eyes. To get a sense of the longing, the expectation. Imagine how God's people must have felt. The book of Malachi ended and the Gospel of Matthew began. There were 400 years of silence from heaven. There were no prophets giving prophecies. God was silent. People waited and waited. And some no doubt lost hope. But others who knew the prophecies that many that we just read tonight held on to hope. One day Jesus told the disciples how privileged they were to see prophecy playing out in front of them. Check out Matthew 13, 16, and 17. Jesus is speaking to his team, to his disciples. But blessed are your eyes. Why? For they see. And your ears. Why? For they hear. Well, what are they seeing and hearing? For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Friends, settle this. The prophets foretold the coming of Christ with pinpoint precision. And guess what? You have now seen and you have now heard. What will you do with what you now know to be true. At its heart, the Christmas season is not all about sentimentality. No, at its core, it's the celebration of fulfilled promises. It's about God who promised men and women long ago that he was going to send a rescuer, a redeemer, to save them from their sins and give them I like how Paul Tripp says it. The birth of the Messiah is concrete evidence that God keeps his promises. 
Some of our grandsons have been learning about Christmas through a book called The Promise. I'm going to put the cover on the screen because some of you grandparents, parents might want to pick this up. The subtitle is The Amazing Story of Our Long-Awaited Savior. Let me just read a few sections. Maybe a really good man can save us. A really good man like Noah whom God saved from the flood so that he and his family could once again fill the earth with people. But Noah emerged from the ark and almost immediately sinned against God. We see that not even a really good man like Noah can save us. Well, maybe a great man of faith can save us, a great man of faith like Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. But Abraham feared other men and lied about Sarah, calling her his sister and not his wife we see that not even a faith-filled man like Abraham can save us. Well, maybe a great prophet can save us, a great prophet like Moses, who led the people, out of, people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. But Moses lacked faith, striking the rock twice. He disobeyed God. We see that not even a great prophet like Moses can save us. But God gave mankind a promise. And oh, what a great promise it was. The promise of salvation in this child. The promise came. He was the one who would crush the head of the serpent. That goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Deliver mankind from their sin. Grant them his righteousness. Work in them his holiness. Give them his life. We began with a billboard, which imagine God saying these words, don't make me come down there. Actually, because of his love, God longed to come down to save you and to save me. It's all part of his eternal plan, and he has kept his promises. I was curious about this God Speaks campaign, so I looked in to see what other slogans appeared in this campaign. Here's one. Life is short, eternity isn't. It's a good one. This one. You think it's hot here? (laughs) You want me to repeat that one? No, okay. Or how about this? We need to talk, God, and this. I've been here all along. Friend, no matter what you've done, no matter how you've been living, no matter how far away you are, no matter what you did last night, some of you are thinking, man, I've sinned way too much. I've fallen way too much. There's no way I can be forgiven. Yes way, you can be forgiven. That's why God sent Jesus to our earth. And we're going to end tonight by celebrating communion. We're going to remember that Jesus came as a baby, but he didn't stay a baby. He came and he grew. He became a man. He performed miracles. He taught, but he did way more than that. He came in order to die in our place for all of our sins. That's not automatic. You and I must repent from how we've been living, and receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord.
Luke chapter 22 records what Jesus said at the Last Supper. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. My body, the body that was born in Bethlehem, fulfilling the promise from Micah 5.2. The incarnation, Jesus came bodily. And now he's meeting with his disciples the night before he gives himself. And he says, this is my body, which is given in your place as your substitute. It's a phrase of substitution. Jesus saying, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to offer myself as full payment for every one of your sins. He says communion helps you remember that because he says, do this. Do what? Take the bread in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is the cup, this cup that is poured out for you. For you, instead of you, is the new covenant, a new relationship in my blood. I don't know where you're at tonight, if you're far away from God, if you're close. Tonight has been encouraging. Tonight has been convicting. But here's what I do know. God loves you. And he came to our earth to offer himself for you instead of you. Would you take some time right now and prepare to receive communion tonight? The symbols remind us that he came bodily and they remind us that he shed his blood for us. But the Bible says don't do this flippantly. And so if the Spirit's convicting you of a sin, don't run from it, don't blame somebody else, don't justify it, confess it, and then go a next step, repent of that. If the Lord's prompting you to make a relationship right that's ruptured, there's distance, unconfessed anger, it's turned to bitterness, make that right. Spend some time now, examine yourself. Perhaps you're new to Edgewood and you're wondering, man, this is, I am, I've been here one time or three times. I've never really done communion here at Edgewood. How, how, how does this go? Well, first of all, let me say, if you're a born-again believer, you're welcome to participate. And the way we've been practicing communion for some time now is you've been given a cup when you came in. There's a clear uh, tab at the top. If you just pull that back, to find the bread. And if you just take that bread and hold it in your hand, and we want to take this together, but let's be reminded of Christmas, of the incarnation, of Jesus coming bodily to our earth and then dying, giving himself in our place. Let's eat together. You can take the next tab, the foil tab, and pull that back slowly. You don't need to take it all the way off. 
And let's be reminded that it's the blood of Jesus that forgives us from our sins. It's the blood that was payment for our sins. The Bible says that if without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. I'm going to invite you to stand now. God, we thank you for what you taught us here tonight, what you reinforced in our lives. Lord, may you impress these truths down deep within us, that they wouldn't just rattle around in our head, but they'd go down deep inside and ultimately then out through our hands and our feet that we might live differently, that we might speak differently, that we might act differently knowing that you did all this for us. Lord, would you now use us for your glory and your honor as we recognize there are people all around us who don't know what we now know based upon what you have shown us through your word. Lord, we go out now as your ambassadors. Use us uh, for the sake of your name, for the fame of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, have a good rest of the weekend.